So you all have probably heard this before. I'm going to guess that you have. But I'm going to read you something as we start out this morning. (laughs) And maybe you've heard this in TV shows. Maybe you've heard it in real life. Maybe, I don't know, heck, we'll find out. Maybe we won't find out. Maybe you won't tell us. Um, Oh, hold on. I'm having spinning circle issues. Okay. You have the right to remain silent. Anything, now this is, you're like, oh, well, we're silent every Sunday morning, but anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Do you understand the rights I have just read to you? With these rights in mind, do you wish to speak to me? Anybody familiar with that? They're called your Miranda rights or the Miranda warning. Now, let me give you just a brief history <clears throat> drawn from... Now, listen, this, this is a thing. Drawn from MirandaWarning.org. Okay? Here's a history of the Miranda warning, Miranda rights. Intimidating or coercive methods of police interrogation were once commonly referred to as undergoing the third degree. Today, as protection against any possibility of police intimidation, we have the Miranda warning. On June 13, 1966, the outcome of Miranda versus Arizona provided that suspects must be informed of their specific legal rights when they are placed under arrest. This decision was based on a case in which a defendant, Ernesto Miranda, was accused of robbery, kidnapping, and rape. During police interrogation, he confessed to the crimes. The conviction was overturned due to allegedly intimidating police interrogation methods. After a trial that included witnesses and other evidence, Miranda was again convicted. His trial was, however, then assured of being fair, and the original conviction was reasonably upheld without question. In 1964, the results of another trial, Escobedo v. Illinois, additionally provided that a suspect has the right to counsel being present during police questioning or to consult with an attorney before being questioned by police if the police intend to use the answers against the suspect at a trial or if the person being questioned is being detained and questioned against their will. Stay with me. In 1968, the finalized text for the Miranda warning was provided by California Deputy Attorney General Doris Meyer and District Attorney Harold Berliner. Prior to the institution of the Miranda warning, confessions need only be voluntary on the part of the suspect. This created a difficult situation for police who were often faced with evidence at trial that the person was not of sound mind or were under circumstantial duress when they gave their confession. The Miranda warning protects any individual's rights by explaining their options clearly and upholds police authority when they properly read the Miranda warning and get a clear, intelligent answer that the suspect understands his or her rights as they have been explained. The Miranda warning is a legal necessity throughout the United States and varies only slightly in its wording in different states. End of quote. (coughs) And now you know. You're welcome. Free history this morning. What I want to talk to you about this morning is rights. You have the right. Rights. You got them. I got them. We got them. We live in a day and age where our rights and the rights of all those around us have become a central focus in just about everything that we do. 
And in most cases, that's a good thing. But I think this is a little injection I'm going to put in here real quick. In an effort to protect everybody's rights, I'm afraid we run the risk of violating everyone's rights because now we don't know what's right and wrong anymore. Right? 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 Right's the key word today. So. But that's a different thought for a different day. Today, as we think about rights, I want you to think about how you feel when your rights are violated. I want you to think about how you respond when your rights are violated. How do you feel? How do you act when you're treated unfairly? How do you feel? How do you think? How do you react when people insult, mock, or harm you? If you're like me, you want one of two things, maybe both. You want justice and or revenge. And here's where things get sticky real fast. Who determines justice? The court system, right? But our faith in that system can easily be swayed or deterred, can it? If you got enough money, you can buy a good enough lawyer who can do whatever they want to do. Find a loophole or they didn't read you your Miranda rights so you're off scot-free even though you did it. (coughs) What if the courts are bogged down with other things and you can't even get your case heard? And it's expensive to go the legal route, right? So who determines justice? Or what if it's not a legal matter at all and you just want to get back at somebody? How far is too far? How does one measure revenge? Well, injustice and insult being an age-old problem, Jesus has some things to say about these things in His Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're at. So we're going to read today Matthew 5, 38 through 42. And let me just tell you, buckle up. This is going to be a bumpy ride. And I hope you don't get your feelings hurt. But you probably will. I did. If you would stand... As we read the recorded words of God in the flesh, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God through the pen of Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So these are the very words of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. God, this is way more than we can handle. This is, if I'm honest, more than I want to hear. I pray that by the power of your Spirit we would receive the pure, holy seed of your Word that it might produce fruit in our lives. God, if there be any here this morning who do not know Jesus as their Savior, Holy Spirit, convict them. Show them their need of a Savior and show them Jesus through what we read and say today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you sit down... Those words that I just read, I don't know about y'all, but that's tough. And we can give a whole lot of reasons why, well, that doesn't exactly mean what it says, or different times, different places. And I'm just telling you, 
God said this. And he didn't stutter. I probably will. But let's dig into this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, so just so you know, we've kind of turned a corner in the sermon here. Okay, Um, for those of you that haven't been with us, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew and we are obviously working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And here in in this point of the sermon, we've turned a corner and now we're looking at how All that we've seen so far, and we've seen a lot in Matthew 5 already, from being poor in spirit, being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, being those who deal with their anger and lust, those who venerate marriage, those who tell the truth. Now we're going to see how all of that plays out towards other people. Don said it this morning. How are you going to live now in light of all that? Jesus has already set the bar so incredibly high through verse 37, that we have to remind ourselves that any attempt to do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, as some people claim to do, is utterly impossible. Hear me say that. It's impossible to do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But yet it's commanded. Jesus Himself commanded it. So something's going on here. And and some people will say, well, you know, I just try to live by the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. To which I say, good luck. Because it's not going to happen. But yet these are God's standards. And Jesus said about the law, I haven't come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fill it full. And I'm commanding you to teach people to keep these commandments. And if you don't teach these commandments, you'll be called least in the kingdom. But if you teach and do them, you'll be called great in the kingdom. These Old Testament laws that we say, eh, they don't really apply to us anymore. Hogwash. You ever wash a pig in buttermilk? Sorry, Charlotte's Web. So, So the bar is incredibly high and we can't do it. Listen to me. Please hear me say this. And we sang it all morning. It takes a genuine move of the Spirit of God to produce these kinds of people. You cannot do it. This that Jesus is calling His people to is not a try-harder-to-do-better culture. It's literally otherworldly. This has to be the work of God, producing fruit in and through His people. By the way... Side note, just hit me. If you look at Galatians 5 and you've got the list of the, the, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Note the dichotomy there. Deeds versus fruit. Work versus fruit. If we are genuinely Christian, it is God producing fruit through us, not us doing deeds, not us doing works. Keep that in mind this morning. That was bonus material. That's not in here, okay? Just... So, this has to be a, the work of God producing fruit in and through His people. So now, as He's done in the past weeks, Jesus attacks a false pharisaical teaching. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But wait a second. We read it this morning, right? That's biblical, right? It is biblical. And actually, there's at least three places 
in the Old Testament where we see this, and I'm going to visit them. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, 19 through 20. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. As he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture. That's my favorite one. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And Deuteronomy 19.21, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now that's pretty clear, right? And what God is saying here is that if a person is injured by another person, the one who did the injuring should receive the same injury or loss as the person that they injured. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound harsh? I think we take it as harsh, but I don't think it is. It's a protection. It's a limit. Okay? It's if you gouge out somebody's eye, your eye will be gouged out. Not both your eyes. If you knock out somebody's tooth, you are going to lose the same tooth. You don't lose two teeth or all your upper teeth. You lose one tooth. If you fracture somebody's arm, your arm gets fractured. It is a limit. It is a protection. It's not harsh. It, it's justice. This is justice. This provision is to make sure offenders are justly punished. Not too little, not too much. And not everybody's going to gouge somebody's eye out, right? Anybody ever gouge somebody's eye out? No? My grandfather hit a person one time, knocked his eye out, they said. That guy was seeing things differently after that, but... You're welcome. Keep write that down. <laughs> so it's a good law. It's a just law, and God dictated it for his people. Now note this. We read Exodus 21, 23 through 25 here, which is all right there. But I want to back up a second and I want to look at Exodus 21, 22 through 25 on purpose. Here you go. Now watch this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there's harm, then they shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now there's, there's something really important there that we see in verse 22 that's included that we didn't read that first time. It says, he shall pay... As the judges determine. Okay? You see that at the end there? But if there's harm, they shall pay blah blah. So this is a judicial matter. It's set about in the civil aspect of God's law. Now we've talked about this a lot. Maybe some of you have heard it, some of you haven't. There are three components to the law of God in the Old Testament. You have the civil, the ritual slash sacrificial, and the moral. So civil, sacrificial, moral. The civil laws were meant for Israel to govern themselves as a nation in legal matters. And this is a civil or a legal matter that we're looking at today. And it was clear that God wanted the judges to determine who would have to pay the eye or the tooth. Okay, So this is a civil law and it's up to judges to determine. That's pretty plain, right? So what Jesus is saying is what the Bible says. Now you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for truth. But remember, Jesus is not refuting the Old Testament law. 
He is, however, surely refuting what is being taught by the scribes and Pharisees as their interpretation and application of that law. And what were they teaching? Now let's go to verse 39, Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, we're going to answer the question in a second after I read this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what's the connection here? It seems like a weird transition, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Well, what's going on? What the scribes and Pharisees were teaching, that eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth meant, they were using that as a license for personal revenge. So they had turned this judicial matter into a personal determination matter. Okay? You knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out your tooth. You gouge out my eye, I'm going to gouge out your eye. And they made it a matter of taking the law into your own hands, exacting justice on your own terms in your own way. Now let me ask you this. If somebody knocked your tooth out, if somebody gouged your eye out, could you calmly, justly say, okay, let's, let's, let's see, it's the fourth, fourth molar, so come here, let me get yours. Somebody gouged your eye out. Boink! Boing, boing, boing. Are you going to calmly walk up and say, okay, come here, come here, come here. Let me get yours too. I mean, come on, really. Nobody's going to do that. There's too many emotions, too much pain, too many variables, too many subjective opinions for anyone to just do what is just. And then as the longer you sit on it, the worse it gets. That son of a gun gouged my eye out. You think you're just going to say, I can't wait to gouge his out. You're going to be thinking, I'm going to get him back. And so this becomes not a justice issue, but a revenge issue. And that's what the Pharisees and scribes were teaching. And this law that God set forth has nothing to do with revenge. As a matter of fact, Jesus says here in verse 39 that His people, His disciples, not only are not supposed to seek revenge, but are to go the complete other way. But I say to you, The king says authoritatively, do not resist the one who is evil. Now say what? Do not resist the one who is evil. Now remember who's speaking here. This is Jesus. The God-man, the king of all kings, is saying that if someone evil opposes you, don't seek your own justice or revenge, but rather do not resist them. Now that word resist is important here. The word for resist means to oppose, to withstand, or to set oneself against. So he's saying, don't let your reaction be, oh no you don't, I'll show you. Or you picked the wrong guy to mess with, I'm going to mess you up. That is the mindset of the world. With the unregenerate, the selfish, the self-preserving world, that's how they think. But not you, Christian. No, instead he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is one of the most misunderstood statements that Jesus ever made. But don't let that thought, that it's misunderstood, have you lose the shock of it. Imagine being in the crowd that day and hearing this. Imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and hearing this. Actually, you are, if you're a believer. Don't resist the one who is evil, but instead, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Turn the other cheek. We say it all the time, right? What's it mean? Orlando, come here. Come here. Come here, seriously. Come here. I'm not kidding. You can get slapped. It's important to understand what's going on here, okay? If I'm right-handed, which is the bulk of the population, right? 10% of the population in the world is left-handed, by the way. Ten, sorry. Put your wrong hand down, Wilson. So if I'm going to slap Orlando on the right cheek, show me your right cheek, point to your right cheek. How am I going to have to do that? That don't work, right? I'm going to have to do this. Right? Because I'm right-handed. I'm going to hit with my power hand. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm going to hit him on the right cheek... Okay, you can sit down. And that's what Jesus is saying. He was purposely saying, this person's going to backhand you. Now, a backhand is a little bit more insulting than just a general slap. But I'm going to backhand you... Ever heard parents say that? Huh? And then next week. That's right. So Jesus is actually, I mean, that, that's important to understand. And to be backhanded was a tremendous insult then. So what Jesus is saying is that if an evil person demeans or berates or insults you to the point of even backhanding you, what's your reaction to be? Backhand him back? No. Now listen, get a hold of this. Jesus is saying you are not to defend your honor. You are not to defend your rights. But you are to take it and even take it some more. Hmm. He's not saying to just get beat up and offer to let them beat you some more. But He is saying be berated. Be insulted. Don't take your own revenge. Just take what comes your way. Now, how does that hit you? I mean, really. What's your gut reaction to that? Are you good with that? I mean, some you, you cut some guy off in traffic. And he boxes you in. And you get out of your car. And he's like, you, a lot of bad words and ugly things. And you're standing there like, brother, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't see you. And he goes, pow! (sighs) What's your gut reaction? Are you good with it? Are you literally going to go, it's not your gut reaction. I can promise you it's not. Now, you may be scared into inaction. Or your adrenaline may get pumping and your amygdala may kick in. You may jump on somebody's chest. But Jesus is saying, give me your other cheek. Let him insult you. We hate to be embarrassed. Oh, it's a fear, right? All you guys in school, I'm sorry, you're mostly homeschooled now. I guess you get embarrassed. But... Oh, we're so in front of our peers. Somebody say something to us to demean us or to mock us. And what Jesus is saying is, absorb it. Mm. You're just like, okay, yeah, that's good. Makes sense. I can do that. No, you're not. Remember, this is anti your instincts. This is supernatural. 
Our reflex is to blow up if we're berated or attacked, especially by an evil person, right? Kids, they talk about as a sick burn. So-and-so said something to so-and-so, and oh man, it's so, so embarrassing, and that goes, well, whatever, man. And we're always insulting people. And oh, heaven forbid it happened in front of our friends. And Jesus is saying, take it and offer yourself for more of it. Be insulted and then offer yourself to be insulted more. He's not done though. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So Jesus just progresses the thought, starting this verse with and. Offer him your left cheek as well and. So don't take your own personal revenge and if someone wants to sue you, they want to take legal action against you, what do you do then? Well, we need to establish some context to understand the image here. He mentions tunics and cloaks. We don't talk like that much anymore. Tunics and cloaks. This comes from Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Now check this out. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. For I am compassionate, God says. So what they would do is they would take a cloak as a pledge if they lent money to somebody. Okay, how do I know you're going to repay me? Here's my cloak. Okay? But they were to give it back before sundown because their cloak was like their bed and their blanket too. That's what they had to cover up with. Anybody get cold when you go to sleep? Imagine not having any covers. It's really neat to me that God cares about that. Don't let a poor person go cold by you taking their cloak. I'm going to hear and I'm compassionate. I don't want them cold when they're asleep. God cares, y'all. So they would take the cloak as a pledge, but they were to give it back before sundown because it was their bed and blanket. Is it? Never, I'm not going to. But here, Jesus says, if someone sues you for your tunic, which was your inner garment, let them have your cloak, your outer garment as well. Give them both. Let them have them. Now what? You see what's going on here? Jesus is directing His disciples to give up their rights, give up the effort to defend themselves. He's telling them to have a mindset that is not concerned with preserving themselves. Now again, we're talking about legal action here. Somebody's suing this person. And obviously, they've got some grounds to where they've lost the case and they've got to give up their inner garment. Jesus is saying, if, if you've done something wrong and, and you're in trouble and, and the judge rules against you, you need to go further than what the judge says. Give him your cloak too. Now again, imagine sitting there in the crowd that day and going, what? You want me to, first you want me to take two shots to my face. Now you're saying give up my tunic and my cloak? He ain't done yet. 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now he's really meddling. We've got another and showing that this is just a further thought on the same thought. Now he's talking about what we've come to call going the extra mile. We say that all the time too, right? <clears throat> My slide change error. If, if, Andrew, can you go to that Matthew 541 slide? 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, good, thank you. I'll, I'll need you the rest of it because this is not working. Now he's talking about going the extra mile. What's that all about? He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This was in reference to the custom of the time that a Roman soldier could conscript any passerby to carry their pack for up to one mile. Now imagine you're walking by and this sweaty, nasty, mean Roman soldier says, you, carry my pack for a mile, but I'm not going that way. I didn't ask you. A mile. Now they got most places by foot, so they're walking this way. The Roman guard's walking this way. He's like, you, carry my pack, a mile. No, not an option. No gets you put in jail. So you've got to carry that pack a mile his direction. Then you've got to come back to the mile that you were at before, and then you've got to go back in the direction. How much time have you lost? It takes about 20 minutes at 3 miles an hour to walk a mile. This has put you at least an hour behind because you lost 20 minutes this way, 20 minutes this way, and then 20 minutes to get back to where you would have been if he hadn't conscripted you. You've just lost an hour of your day. Now, how many of you can afford to lose an hour of your day? And Jesus just said, don't just go one mile with him, go two. And remember, Israelites hated Romans. And there were a lot of Romans. And not just Romans, Roman soldiers who were the very sign of Caesar's strength and Caesar's glory and people occupying our land. And you just wait, the Messiah's coming. And when he comes, he's going to wipe y'all out. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to make you go two miles with him instead of just one. Israelites hated the Romans. They hated them. So could you imagine the teeth grinding when a Roman soldier said, carry my pack, you loser Jew. And Jesus is saying, if they do that to you, go another mile. They won't be expecting that. Uh, no, they won't. And now Jesus hits directly at their hatred even when he says that if you're forced to go one mile, not only don't get mad or self-righteous, but instead do more. Go two miles. Now, I don't, I don't know if we gather how crazy that must have sounded to these people. Don't give reasons you don't want to do what's needed. Well, I shouldn't have to do that. Do it and more. Go above and beyond in kindness in doing more that is expected of you. Now put yourself in their place. What if a policeman stopped you today on the road and said, Hey, I need you to deliver this package to Charleston for me. Sir, I'm going to Princeton. Son, you do this or you're going to jail. You can't do that. I've got my rights. Now, seriously, imagine how frustrating that would be i got stuff to do. I don't care. Okay, how about I take it to Charleston and then I go to the precinct too to let them know that it was delivered. Huh. Okay, sounds good to me. Think We don't have Roman soldiers today, but we do have oppressive bosses. We've got overbearing teachers. We've got hard to get along with spouses, or y'all do, I don't. And on and on and on, okay? So how does that translate here? Well, we'll look look at that in application more. But for now, just feel the shock, and I'm guessing worry, that the disciples must have felt at this point. And He's not even done yet. Last verse, if you can go to 542. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, now you're just being mean, Jesus. I mean, these people weren't wealthy. They didn't have a lot of money. Don't avenge yourself. Don't resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. Give the one who sues you for your tunic, your cloak as well. Go the extra mile with the Roman soldier. And now, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Really? Our favorite word here is but. But, 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 but. I got a thousand reasons why I shouldn't give money to this person. I got a thousand reasons why I can't help meet his needs because my needs aren't even met. What about enabling bad behavior? But what are they going to do with this money? They're just going to buy drugs with it. Jesus says, give and do not refuse. Now, we can hem haul, we can justify a lot of things here. We can give a thousand reasons why we shouldn't. And we may be right. But if we're stuck in the mindset of justifying why we shouldn't be like Jesus is saying we should be here, we're missing the point. Jesus is pointing His disciples to a life of self-denial. A life that is not caught up in reasons why we shouldn't forget our rights and live in light of eternity, not just the here and now. And not money, not physical or mental mistreatment, nor anything else should deter us from living in the supernatural ability to live like Jesus lived. They carried a purse around full of coins and money. For what purpose? To meet their needs? Absolutely. But I'm sure they were giving to the poor as well. And the ultimate point is, we're supposed to live like Jesus lived. He's just showing us who He is in this message. And how He will conduct His life on the earth while He was here. Which leads us to application, where hopefully we can sort all this out a little bit better. Now this passage says some really controversial stuff. And if I'm honest, it it makes me mad. I mean, I'm just being honest. But I think it should make us ask a lot of questions. Okay, here's one. How many cheeks should I turn? Do I just keep... Should I let myself live in a cycle of abuse? Should I not be upset by injustice? Should I be one who just gives up my stuff even when I'm being treated unfairly? Should I always and without question just give money away indiscreetly and without thought of what might happen as a result? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't have answers to those questions this morning. And I don't really think we need answers to those questions to get what's going on in this passage today. You see, Jesus isn't making hard and fast rules here. He's not prescribing exactly what to do in specific instances. He's talking about a mindset, or more accurately, a heart attitude that is to be ours as His followers. He's gazing deep into our inner lives and saying they should look much different than the people in the general public. These followers of Jesus are to stand out, to be distinct and separate to a degree never before seen on God's green earth. Because if you live this way, you're going to be different than most people. You're going to stand out. People are going to notice. And that's the point. 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So therefore, do your good deeds in the presence of men so that they might see those good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. These things glorify God. And that's why you're supposed to do them. So, there's a lot of information, a lot of stuff. So we have five application points this morning. That's right, two bonus application points today. (laughs) I'm going two extra miles, two extra application points, because, hey, I've been taught well. They start with R's, so they're pirate application points. R. Here's the five application points. Revenge, resist, reasons, refuse, resurrection. Revenge, resist, reasons, refuse, resurrection. So let's look at how we are to act, what we are to do in light of today's passage. And first let's look at revenge. Jesus made it clear when speaking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that we are not to take our own revenge. Period. That's hard and fast. The Old Testament law concerning Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth tooth was about judicial decisions, not matters of personal revenge or people doing something that make things right if they've been wronged. So let me ask you this with that in mind. Who do you have a grudge against? Who are you planning your revenge against right now? Kids, adults, students, that person that's just like, man, if if I could just get that opening, I'm going to get them. Maybe nobody. I hope it's nobody. Anybody you're hoping to get even with? I mean, to get back to the beginning of this whole message, you have your rights, right? Surely God wouldn't want you to be wronged and not do anything about it, right? Surely God wouldn't want people to get away with taking wrong things toward His people, would He? Well, actually, there's some really good biblical evidence that revenge in any form is an anti-Christian attitude. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. And now we see what we will ultimately be looking for when we are wronged. We don't repay evil. We don't seek our own revenge, but instead we wait for the Lord. It is God Himself who will deliver you. This is seen even more clearly and powerfully in what's probably a familiar passage to a lot of us. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, we don't have, full, we don't have time this morning to fully delve into that passage there in Romans 12. We did when we went through Romans. But the simple point is that we are to never avenge ourselves. Never. That smoldering fire in you that is waiting for the right time, the perfect opportunity to zap that person who hurt you or embarrassed you or whatever, that fire is all you. It's all flesh. And listen to me, it's all sin. Never avenge yourself. 
So then what? But leave it to the wrath of God. Listen to me, church. Listen. God cares about revenge. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32.35 when he says that God says that vengeance belongs to Him. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Now that's God talking. Listen, God owns vengeance. It belongs to Him, not you. God will not let any sin, and that means any sin against His people, against you, His child, He's not going to let any sin go unpunished. He's either going to punish that sin in the body of Christ or in hell forever. He repays evil people for their evil deeds. You don't need to try to pay people back. God will do that. God owns that right and you don't. And that's good news. You don't have to carry the anger. You don't have to plan the right way to get back at somebody. You can forgive them and move on and not let them live not paying rent in your head and heart. You can forgive and move on, trusting God to take care of it. God will handle it. Our minds are to be set on God and His glory, not us and our hurt feelings. So, to apply it, let go of your revenge plans. Forgive the person who has wronged you and trust God to handle them. That's freedom. That's good news. So that was revenge. Second, resist. We said earlier that the word resist means to oppose, to withstand, to set oneself against. And for application, I want us to know what it means to not do that. Let me start this application point with a reminder that Jesus isn't prescribing specific actions for specific times. When He says not to resist one who is evil, He is not categorically saying that we should just accept the evil things done by evil people and not do anything about it. We are told plainly in James 4.7 that we are to resist the devil. Okay? Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there is a call to resist evil. And we should use any means possible to protest such evil as what we see in these laws being made to kill children in the third trimester or even after birth. Absolutely resist these evils and others. But again, we want to focus on our hearts and minds regarding being humiliated by evil people, like being backhanded, being struck on our right cheek. Our first instinct, our fleshly instinct, our reflex is to set ourselves against people like that. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't set yourself against that person. We should be those who literally turn the other cheek. So do we have an example of this? Well, sure we do. Is this not exactly how Jesus conducted Himself through His arrest, His trials, His scourging, and His crucifixion? There in the garden, Matthew 26, 51 through 53, as the mob was arresting Him and Peter was cutting off this dude's ear... Jesus says, and behold, one of those who... Well, we'll get to what he says in a second. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. 
Jesus is saying, don't resist this, folks. He wasn't in resist mode. If he wanted to be, he could have breathed and they'd all been wiped out. Or 10,000 legions of angels would have come and made short work of them. Jesus was not in resist mode, but rather he was in the mode of seeing that his Father's will be completed. And that's how we should be. That is to be our mindset. Our hearts are to be set on God's will, not on figuring out how we might be able to paint the fence or wax on, wax off to make sure some rude dude's backhand doesn't reach our right or left cheek. That's right, Miyagi-san. We are not set to resist, but to reflect. We are to reflect the life and glory of Jesus as we are offended, as we are humiliated by evil people. Not the strength of Miyagi-san Dojo. Jesus even hung on the cross and asked God to forgive those who crucified Him. Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. Now Jesus could have chosen to resist at this point on the cross. They even mocked Him and said, Hey, if you're the Christ, come on down. And He hung there and asked for their forgiveness. He wasn't in resist mode. And Jesus' actions through this process surely affected Peter. Listen to Peter describe it in 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Yes, that is who we are to be from our hearts. Not resistance, entrusting ourselves to God. Not resistance, but reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ as we absorb what evil people throw at us. Apply that. Revenge, resist, next is reason, point three. That's actually reasons, plural. Let me explain what I mean here. Jesus said that if someone sues you to take your tunic, you should let them have your cloak as well. And the Jews knew from their law that that cloak was rightfully theirs and should be returned to them by nightfall. God said so. So what this application point is all about is knowing and giving reasons why people shouldn't mistreat you. And boy, we've got a lot of good ones. I've got a lot of good reasons. We develop a mindset, especially regarding our rights, that if someone violates these rights, we have a long list of why they are wrong to do so. We're good at reasons, especially when those reasons become our protection. You can't do that to me because, or you won't get away with this because, well, reasons. And we have a thousand of them. And we whip them out when we are crossed or wronged. The guy whose tunic is being taken had good reasons to hang on to his cloak. And Jesus says, get rid of the reasons and the cloak. Do more than what the person seeking your tunic expects to have done. If he's suing you and may win, you should be quick to make reparation above and beyond what he's seeking. It's a lot like when Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5 that we should come to terms quickly with our accuser on the way to court. We 
are to be those who seek the resolution. And it should amaze our accuser how far we are going to go to make things right for them. Get rid of your reasons why you shouldn't pay and seek to win back your brother or even your accuser by going above and beyond what they are asking. Get rid of your reasons. Which leads us to point four, which is refuse. Regarding going above and beyond, Jesus said to do more than what you're forced to do, going two miles after being conscripted to go one. And He's conveying the truth that we are not those who refuse to do what we are bound to do legally. But we're even to do more than is called for. Now to be clear, we're not talking about giving in to commands to sin. We are clearly to refuse those commands. But we are not to be those who refuse to do what we are obliged to do by law just because we don't like it. Taxes, right? In taxes, Jesus was very specific. He asked them, whose picture's on this? He said, Caesar's. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Could you imagine owing the IRS $500 and you pay him $750? do not do that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but pay your taxes. And don't give me a thousand reasons why you shouldn't have to pay your taxes. You're commanded to do it. It's legal to do it. So do it. And quit whining about it. I'm talking to myself. I shouldn't have to pay these taxes. I don't get no tax break for homeschooling my kids. Sorry. That's what I do. We shouldn't find reasons to refuse what we're legally commanded to do. I'll refuse. I'll be a conscientious objector. Whatever. And while we don't live according to the ways of this world, we do submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Why? Romans 13, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We are not to refuse obedience to the authorities in our lives. Kids, maybe it's in your family. Adults, maybe it's in your job. Don't refuse obedience to the authorities in your life, in your communities, in your country. We are to be those who recognize and comply to authority going above and beyond the expected one mile. Here you go, kids. You ready? Your parents tell you to clean your room. Clean your room and the kitchen. Can I get an amen, parents? Come on. Yeah, come on. I'm about to have church up in here. Don't refuse what you're supposed to do. Do more than you're supposed to do. Why? Because ultimately, all authority is from God. Whether it's a Roman soldier, a city mayor, a mom, or a dad. Do what they tell you, which is expected, and then do more because that testifies to the greatness of your God, which is best for you, them, and the Lord. Okay, you say, sounds great. Sounds very nice and all. Maybe even a little bit Pollyanna-ish. Anybody use that phrase anymore? That's so Pollyanna. Maybe I'm dating myself. Pollyanna was like this picture-perfect thing. But let me ask you this question before we move into the last application point. Is this really possible? Are these things that we're talking about really possible? Who can do this? Who can operate like this? Well, I'm glad you asked, even though you didn't. I did. 
Only people who know the power and principle of resurrection can apply this, which is our fifth and final application point today, resurrection. What's resurrection got to do with this? I'm glad you asked that too. Because it has everything to do with what we're talking about today. Listen, you are, I am, we all are hardwired to defend ourselves. All of us are hardwired to fight for our rights and take care of ourselves. None of us, nobody in this room left to ourselves is going to entertain what Jesus is suggesting in our passage today. We are born with instincts to get what is ours and to preserve our lives. But through Christ, there is a different way to live. If you are born again, given a new life, a resurrection life, what Jesus is teaching about today is not just possible, it's the norm. It's how Jesus lived. Jesus displayed this clearly in His life and in His death. And then through His resurrection, get a hold of this, He made a way for us to do what He had done. Only resurrection power can help us to turn the other cheek, to give our tunic and our cloak, to go the extra mile and to give to who asks of us. Only through resurrection power can these actions be seen coming out of a head and heart filled with the love of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. It is completely unnatural. It is completely supernatural, like we've already said. And that supernatural leads to a new way of living and thinking and even feeling. I would love to read all of Romans 8 right here. But I'm not going to because of time. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 though. And I want you to hear this in light of what we've read today, what we've seen today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, get a hold of this. You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But... If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It is the resurrection life of Jesus Christ that will give life to our mortal bodies, our mortal thoughts, our mortal feelings. It is the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in us if we are in Christ. 
And that very same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead can reprogram and repurpose our lives away from self-preservation and into self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice. Now, by the power of God's Spirit, I truly do have the right and the power to remain silent. I don't have to promote or please myself. I get to go above and beyond the expectations of the lost world around me and glorify God with my thoughts, feelings, and actions. Then, and only then, will I know what it means to not take revenge, not resist evil people, remove any reasons for my not complying, and not refuse those who have needs that I can meet. Only by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit of God. This is supernatural. And if you don't have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life, you're not going to do this. And if you do have the Holy Spirit and you're operating in the flesh, you're not going to do this. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you and living through you, this is what your life is going to look like. Period. Now maybe you're here today and this is all just foolishness to you. That's crazy talk. Them Christian people are crazy. I ain't giving my cheek to somebody else to hit the other one. Well, they've already hit one. I'm going to take that sucker down. Maybe you don't know when you haven't received the gift of God's Spirit through the work of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and haven't received Him into your life, the good news is this afternoon, you can And that looks like this. You admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you're hardwired to preserve yourself. And you look to God and say, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness for my sins. I need a Savior to save me from myself and from your wrath, God. Know that Jesus modeled all of what we've discussed today in His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. He lived a perfect life and then God placed the sins of... His people onto the body of Christ and punish those sins so that He doesn't have to punish us. And if you'll place your faith in that sacrifice and that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected and then ascended into heaven where He sits at God's right hand and ever lives to make intercession for His people. If you will believe that, you receive the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus Christ to live this life. Trust that Jesus now sits in heaven ready and willing to intercede for you so that you might escape the wrath of God that is coming on all those who are disobedient to His command to be saved. And when you receive that Spirit, you have the right and the power to live anew, to live differently, and to glorify God in all that you do. And that's what you were created for, whether you know it or not. Let's pray. God, we may be frustrated by this, scared by this, upset by this. I pray that we, your people, God, would be thrilled with this. That I can, by the power of your Spirit, live a life that shows who Jesus Christ is. Help us to be a people who do not seek their own revenge, God. Help us to be a people who know what it means to turn the other cheek. Help us to be those who do not set ourselves against to resist other people who are evil, 
just because we want to resist them. Help us to get rid of our reasons. Help us to not refuse those who come to us in need. And God, help us to live in the resurrection power of your Holy Spirit so that you might get glory in our lives. We need your help. Father, we sang it this morning. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. May that be our cry as we leave this place today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive the same benediction I gave you last week. It's just too good to not reshare it. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat Asian food with us, y'all.